You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our Wednesday release of the show where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is Dan Held, and he's a Bitcoin OG and someone that was part of the original Silicon Valley Bitcoin meetup group back in 2013 with other people like the founders of Coinbase, Kraken, and many other influential founders in the space today. Dan has created some crypto businesses and products that have been acquired by companies like Airbnb and Kraken, and he's a major content creator to the Bitcoin ecosystem. On the show today, we talked to Dan about his thoughts on the current cycle, his opinions and metrics for a potential super cycle, exchange analytics and bank charters, Bitcoin's future security and incentive structure, lending and borrowing, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Dan Held. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So uh, welcome to the show. I've got Dan Held here. And Dan, great to have this conversation. We talk all the time over Twitter, but never in person. So I'm pretty excited to be able to do this with you. Preston, I think I actually got COVID and we've had to push this back a couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm pretty thrilled to actually start recording. It's, it's finally happening. It's happening. We're going to do it. All right. So let's start here, Dan. So there's a lot of things happening, not only with this bull cycle, but everything that's happening in the macro backdrop with just the economy, with interest rates and all that. I'm just kind of curious to hear your just overall overview, you know, your 30, 40,000 foot view of what's going on right now and kind of where you see where we're at in the cycle. And then if you have any comments on the overall economy too, feel free to throw those in there. Yeah. So I coined this term. I don't know if I coined it. I, I used it. At- about two years ago, and it kind of stuck and became more popular. But I use this term called the super cycle. And you know, I actually mentioned this back in 2019 for the first time, which is that what happens if Bitcoin goes through its normal micro cycle of a four-year cycle that typically occurs around the halving, and it has a, a bull and a bear market? And what happens if that occurs simultaneously while we have a larger macro market bear market that occurs because Bitcoin has largely existed in a big bull run in the macro markets. So uh, I coined that term super cycle. And I think lately people have really gotten into the idea because some of this stuff has started to manifest. Some of this you know, around, like for example, Tesla buying Bitcoin and Michael Saylor, company treasuries buying Bitcoin, I think was a really huge, huge sort of validation that this time will be different or that this cycle might be different than the other ones. So for me, you know, we've got a lot of check marks here that people go, hey Dan, what do you look for for a super cycle? Or what do you feel are check marks for like being bullish on Bitcoin right now? First of all, we've had the halving that occurred in 2020. This is a typical cycle that we would see play out where Bitcoin has a bull run post halving over the next year and a half. And we're starting to see that happen. And then we also have other things like you've got institutions finally validating Bitcoin. You've got big macro trader folks. Paul Tudor Jones and others who say Bitcoin is gold 2.0. You know, this was an investment thesis that I had when I first entered my Bitcoin position back in 2012 is that Bitcoin is gold 2.0. And to see it being validated by the market is huge. So this, I would say that's more on, you know, seeing the mainstream world start to buy into Bitcoin. That's another big check mark. We also have very easy ways to buy Bitcoin. Cash app, you know, you've got cash app. We got, um, I believe today there was news that Charles Schwab was looking at ways to add Bitcoin to their brokerage. So you've got that, you've got PayPal, 
there's going to be almost an infinity number of ways to buy Bitcoin, which increases the demand surface area. So more and more demand can flow in, and there's only 21 million Bitcoin. So that's a big component of Bitcoin itself. And then the Bitcoin narrative, like we've got uh, your podcast and, and other great folks in the space like Peter McCormick and Stefan Levera, and there's so much great content now. And we've shortened that ladder from going, I don't know anything about Bitcoin to I, I kind of grok Bitcoin and I want to go buy it. That ladder has been much shorter than what it was in the previous cycles. Back in 13 and 17, it took a ton of, of, kind of self-reflection and really digging in to understand Bitcoin. And now we've made that narrative really, really simple. So we've got all that going on with Bitcoin. And then we had COVID hit. And COVID, I think, rattled everyone's belief in the existing system. They go, okay, I, I'm starting to question my government's response to not only COVID, but also their financial or fiscal and monetary response to the COVID economic crisis. And so people are starting to question the nature of their reality. And this, I think, is a, is a huge, huge moment for Bitcoin because it finally brings the lens of why Bitcoin matters. It brings it into focus. So COVID brings Bitcoin's value prop into focus. I made an analogy that might resonate here, which is that most people don't think about buying like earthquake insurance until an earthquake happens. And that's kind of like Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin is made and its value prop shines when you start to lose trust in your government. And that doesn't happen <laughs> on an... <laughs> A normal basis. Most people don't want to question the nature of the reality, and COVID kind of forced that to happen. So, Dan, you're at Kraken, and recently there was big news on Kraken becoming they're going to get a bank charter, which I'm assuming automatically means that they're then going to be FDIC insured for deposits. Is that assumption true? And what does this all mean as far as getting the bank charter? Yeah, good questions. I'm on the product team leading growth marketing, and we stay pretty laser focused on day-to-day -day work. So we're building out spot, futures, um, other financial instruments we're looking at. On the banking side, that's a little bit more out there on the roadmap. So I don't spend a ton of time digging in on that. From my understanding is that since it's full reserve, it's a full reserve bank, you are able to circumvent some requirements. And I think that might actually be around like I think we, we would be FDIC insured, but I, I don't believe we have other requirements. But I'm not exactly sure. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit out of my expertise here. I do know that we can, do, we can offer some services like lending and borrowing, where you know, it is a full reserve bank, but some customers could elect to have some of their funds lent out. So I think some of that stuff is really fascinating. I think on an infrastructure level, it connects us much more deeply in the financial system where we don't have to worry about finding a bank account. Back in 2013, this was actually a big, big deal. I mean, if you were a Bitcoin company, having a bank account was like the holy grail. Silicon Valley Bank only banked Coinbase. They didn't bank any other crypto startup. Coinbase had this incredible unfair advantage, likely due to their investor base of A16Z, hugely unfair advantage in the United States in 2013 and 2012 with a relationship with SVB. So Kraken, I think, has seen... You know, Jesse has been... And Kraken has been around for a long, long time. We want to build the most stable infrastructure for Kraken to survive and exist with the most minimal amount of third parties that we have to rely upon and the most minimal amount of regulatory check marks that we have to check off. So for my understanding, that's what Wyoming gives us with the SPDI license. And then on the customer front, in terms of what value we offer, that's where I'm not 100% certain around FDIC or not. But from my understanding, we're creating a full reserve bank. So I'm not sure if FDIC would even be something that we would, we would need to get. I think that's what's been brought up before. The kind of the cool value prop of Kraken is that 
with the Kraken Bank, we wouldn't uh, necessarily need to have FDIC insurance since it's full reserve. You don't need insurance if all the assets are there. As I think through the evolution of not just Kraken, but any bank for that matter, and I, I find it really fascinating that Jack Dorsey had the big announcement with Square and that they're going to become a, a chartered bank as well. And so if I was going to warp myself a year into the future, I don't think it's far off that people can change whoever their employer is, whoever they're getting their paycheck from and doing their banking today, they could start routing those paychecks to a Kraken or to a Square, to wherever. And then those deposits could be tokenized. And then these interest rates that we're seeing, call it, especially on US dollars, is like anywhere from 7 to 10%. Do people start to get those types of interest rates for their deposits into these types of banks? Is this happening soon? Yeah. So, I mean, those rates that we're seeing, you're kind of referencing like USDC and USDT stablecoin yeah. interest yeah. rates. These aren't exactly like the same sort of risk profile that a savings account has. You know, I think these are a little bit different, but certainly this new crypto world, especially with like USDC, USDT, from my understanding, a lot of the borrow for USDC and USDT is coming from collateralized borrowing using Bitcoin as collateral. So let's say you want to borrow dollars against your Bitcoin as collateral. My understanding is that a lot of these services offer like actual USD or USDT or USDC. And that's where the demand for borrowing USDT and USDC is coming from is the demand to take a margin position with your Bitcoin. So borrowing against your Bitcoin as collateral. And so from my understanding, there's a dollar shortage with that trade or with that with that sort of setup. Currently, I pay 10 to 11% with my Unchained Capital loan, which is in dollars. But I noticed like on BlockFi, if you borrow against your Bitcoin as collateral, that I think you can borrow USDC. So that's where that really high interest rate is coming from is there's a dollar shortage when it comes to borrowing, you know, borrowing dollars against your Bitcoin as collateral, which I'm not exactly sure why that exists. Bitcoin is a pristine piece of collateral. It's a phenomenal piece of collateral that if we look at other collateralized loans, like if we look at interactive brokers and how much it costs to borrow against your securities, uh, if you borrow, I think like a quarter million, like in USD against your securities as collateral, your borrow rate is 75 bips. So like less than 1%. I would expect Bitcoins being able to borrow against Bitcoin as collateral, like that borrow rate should drop down to something equivalent to that. Bitcoin is a pristine piece of collateral that I can take. And if I'm the lender, I can take that collateral and go sell it at a bunch of different venues instantaneously. And it's fungible. So I can sell it at any venue. I'd like one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. It's not like a piece of property where, for example, like my home isn't one home doesn't equal another home and there's maintenance costs and everything else. So I think that's where the higher rate of yield is coming from for those stablecoin dollars. That's what I've heard is like that plus other borrowing for other types of trading activity. I'm not sure if we can equivalently call that like a savings account. So when it comes to these new banks of like Kraken and and Square, I'm not sure if we could call that like a savings account, but it might be more of like people are going to be attracted to that yield and that's definitely going to attract depositors regardless of, of it being not being an equivalent risk. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point that you raise on the risk because if the deposit is being over collateralized and you're in a 24/7 market like the risk is really just the management of the keys at that point yeah well it depends on on how the coins are being like what uh, if you're lending out let's say you're a lender of USDC or USDT depends on what that those coins are or what what those stable coin dollars are being used for yeah so yeah certainly a very low risk <laughs> very low risk 
operation would be lending to over collateralized positions. I mean, that's phenomenal risk. That's why I think that rate's going to go down over time. You know, I think that's just a phenomenal risk profile. I was talking more of like if you're lending USDC or USDC for folks taking advantage of like arbitrage trading opportunities or other activities, which BlockFi and Genesis Capital and these other big lending shops, we don't know exactly what that counterparty mix is. Some of that counterparty mix are folks who they've got over collateralized Bitcoin positions and they're borrowing dollars, which that's a pretty low risk endeavor. But then there's also much higher risk ones, which are different types of trades that they're facilitating. That aren't necessarily over collateralized. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it could be partial collateralization. I mean, but some of these, some of these desks, they accept seventy percent collateralization. So uh, some of these aren't fully collateralized. So this is one that I really wanted to talk to you about, and I think it's important for you to kind of describe this first to my audience because I don't think a lot of them fully understand this idea of using Lightning Pool to capture yield in the future. So describe this this whole layer two to them, and and kind of get into this lightning pool. And then after we kind of get into a lot of that, then let's compare it back to this borrowing and lending markets that that we were just talking about as far as what kind of yields you kind of expect in the future and what this might all mean. Yeah. So I'll try my best to cover some of these yield generation activities with directly with the Bitcoin network, uh, which uh, we consider lightning pool to be one of those and coin joins as well with join market. So I'll speak to the best of my ability. I have not done a lightning pool trade myself. I have not lent any coins to uh, Lightning channels. So I have not actually done this myself. I just talked, I DM'd Ryan Gentry a few days ago. He's with Lightning Labs. He told me there's a, a GUI now. So I, I didn't realize that. I've been so busy with work. I haven't uh, popped my head up and I didn't realize that there's actually a GUI now because I'm, I'm not technical. I'm not an engineer. So I plan on playing around with that very soon. So I'll, I'll cover some of the basics, but you know, I'm speaking from uh, kind of a very high level here. So with Lightning Pool, from my understanding, is that you are providing liquidity for Lightning channels to be opened and closed in a certain fashion, and you're being compensated for providing liquidity for others to be able to facilitate the routing and and movement of coins through different Lightning channels. Dan, first get into what Lightning even is, because there's a lot of people that are probably listening to my show that don't even know what that is when we're talking about the second layer on top of Bitcoin. That's a great point. So Bitcoin's community and developers have decided to approach scaling via a sort of stacked architecture. And so what we refer to as layer one would be Bitcoin's like a transaction on layer one. And that would be a Bitcoin transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. We call layer two and layer three are these stacked layers on top of Bitcoin. What these represent are scaling layers where a lot of times what happens and what happens like a, a lightning transaction a lightning channel is open between two participants, uh, and uh, the channel is originally opened on a, with an on-chain transaction on layer one and closed with an on-chain transaction on layer one. So two transactions to open and close a lightning channel. And the way that it works is that the person A and person B can transact very rapidly and very cheaply on layer two, which requires less settlement assurances because the values are smaller and it's going back and forth very, very quickly. So while the Bitcoin base layer can only handle X amount of transactions, like a very small amount of transactions, on layer two, we're talking like X to the 10th power, 20th power. You know, We're talking like a huge magnitude, more number of transactions can occur on these layers above Bitcoin. And Lightning is one of those. So Lightning uh, requires only two on-chain transactions, the opening and closing of a Lightning channel. It gets more complicated than that, but I'm just boiling it down to as simple as I possibly can here without leading to a bunch of nuance. 
So, uh, for example, we could have millions of transactions that happen between counterparty uh, A and party B, and that net value. Uh, so, so, let's say we each have ten dollars, and we just shuffle that back back and forth like million times. And then the net value is I have two dollars, and the other party has eight dollars. That net value is then closed out with uh, with that second on chain transaction. So, Nick Carter calls that as economic density. Uh, so what Lightning provides is is for Bitcoin to be able to support many, many, many more transactions on the second layer. And it's very economically dense because all those transactions are essentially the net value is then printed on the on the base layer one. So to facilitate that, you know, the routing of a Lightning transaction between different parties, it gets much more complicated than between party A and party B. There's party C and party D, and they have Lightning channels that they've opened up as well between each other. And then things can get really complex with that, where it's sort of um, you can think about it like different, like a canal, um, like those locks that you see uh, for boats when they're going between two different bodies of water that are at different altitude or different uh, levels. These locks allow for that water and that boat to proceed from one body of water to another. You can kind of think about a lightning transaction occurring as many of these different locks between many different pools of liquidity. And you can imagine that to get between these different pools of liquidity, you have to find the right route and you have to have the appropriate amount of water in the locks. And so that's what Lightning Pool helps with is it helps these channels balance and make sure that they have enough liquidity to facilitate the proper routing of a transaction through these different locks. That's the most simple way that I think, can, I, think I can describe it. And the big advantage that we're really getting by stepping into this layer two of Lightning in layer one, it takes 10 minutes for these blocks to occur. So like you might, let's say you were trying to go to Starbucks, pay for your coffee on layer one, you'd have to stand there for 30 minutes to get three blocks to clear in order to pay for your $5 coffee. But if, you're, if you have a lightning channel that you've opened up, now the, the payment of $5 can immediately go through. They can immediately see that the transaction's complete and it solves this whole speed and uh, immediate clearance, the second one. So we're talking about uh, when you're talking about Lightning Pool, taking your Bitcoins, putting them into a pool on this second layer, and then receiving an interest rate on top of it. What are some of the numbers that you're hearing this might evolve into? Because right now, today, it's really almost meaningless. But in the future, when we all expect this to be used, what are some of the numbers that you're hearing, Dan? It's pretty hard to nail down like a, what a long-term interest rate might be that you would earn on lending your coins to Lightning Pool. I mean, if I were to guess, Lightning Pool is, is trust minimized, which means like I don't have as high counterparty risk when I'm providing liquidity to these channels versus um, the counterparty risk that I might have lending coins on uh, Genesis, BlockFi, Ledin. You know, those are facilitating like certain types of arbitrage trades and whatnot. Which incurs, I would say, a much higher counterparty risk. So I would expect that a lot of supply would be willing to lend to these lightning pools. And I'm guessing demand to pay this interest rate to borrow these coins to facilitate these channels. I would, I would guess the demand is probably lower than supply, and, and demand and supply dictate everything in this world. So I would imagine that there's a lot of supply chasing much less demand due to how low risk this would be. So my assumption is probably under 1% long-term, um, like a 1% annualized yield is probably what I would expect from this. We, we see a similar level with coin joins. So with coin joins, coin joins are a way to obfuscate your Bitcoin transactions on layer one. 
essentially you're mixing your, I don't want to get too complicated using terminologies like UTXO, but you're mixing, essentially mixing your coins uh, in a function to obfuscate the history of them with other people's coins. And uh, with, with JoinMarket, JoinMarket is a, a software that doesn't have any centralized counterparty and you coordinate peer-to-peer. And with that, you are able to, there are folks who want to mix their coins right now and are willing to pay for that convenience. And there are individuals who have coins readily available to mix, and you pay them for that convenience of mixing your coins at this moment. For example, let's say you wanted to mix half a million dollars of your coins to obfuscate the the transaction history. Uh, You need to find a counterparty who wants to mix that amount right now. And so you pay them for that, that convenience. And so annualized yield on coin joins, which coin joins have been in operation for five years, it's it's a pretty robust software. There haven't been, from my best of understanding, there hasn't been a zero day found or any sort of flaws or exploits. And it uses the Bitcoin base layer. So it's a pretty trust minimized way to earn yield. From my understanding now, it's really difficult because if people are getting paid to mix their coins, they're not exactly talkative about <laughs> how much yield they're earning because um, you're being paid to mix coins with other folks. So, you know, from my understanding, like we're talking like between like 20 and 80 bips. So less than a percent as well there due to very low risk. With the coin join markets, you're also being paid to mix your coins. So you're obfuscating your own transaction history. So it's kind of an added benefit of earning yield there. So I, I would expect that Lightning Pool probably is a similar function where there's a lot of supply willing to provide liquidity to these channels, uh, to provide liquidity to Lightning Pool. Um, and there's probably not as much demand for it. So rates, I would probably expect like long-term to be under 1%. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. 
The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Talk to us about some of your thoughts on non-financial uses of blockchains. Are there any? Insurance, identity, and do you see that being built on top of Bitcoin? Do you see other platforms? How do you see a lot of this moving forward beyond just Bitcoin as a token of decentralized currency? Or That's a great question. So I, I always think about it from a, a kind of more product mindset of Satoshi built blockchain tech to build Bitcoin. Um, blockchain technology has a, a pretty minimal surface area of what, is, what it is useful for. Similar to how a shovel is useful for very few things in a tank, for example, isn't useful for ride sharing or picking up groceries or dropping off the kids at school. Um, Everything in this world is special purpose built for a certain function. Blockchain is the same thing. So with blockchain technology, I think that if we look at how it functions, there's a lot of things we can eliminate that it could potentially do. For example, having real world assets on a blockchain I don't think makes makes a lot of sense, and, and here is why. Let's let's say I tokenize my house, and I take my house, and I take the uh, the deed to my house, and it's now been digitized. Okay, well, let's say that that deed that I own on the blockchain is is transferred to someone else because they hacked my account and moved it. So, in the real world, the U.S. government, which enforces the title and the title uh, other counterparties as well, like. I think there's like different. I, I don't own a home, so I, I know that there are title uh, folks. Who, uh, there's like title insurance, and there's title transfers and and whatnot. They don't recognize the legitimacy of that transaction on a blockchain. Uh, in the real world, they're the legitimate uh, recognized party that that deems who owns what, and the government enforces that physically in the real world, so that any tokenized asset on a chain. May or may not be recognized by authorities as a legitimate transaction. Furthermore, enforcement of that again falls onto like not only the not only the recognition but the enforcement as well falls onto the local uh, physically present individuals. If someone stole the title to my house on a blockchain, I'm still going to live in it. <laughs> Good luck getting me out. So you know, I, I think these real world assets have a it's a big problem bringing them on chain because one, you've got the physical-based authorities who don't recognize it as a legitimate way to transfer assets that exist in the real world. Um, you also have the problem of validating that the asset is on-chain. So if you tokenize something like you tokenize an Apple and put it on-chain, you still have to rely on some trusted party to verify the, the, the physical nature of it, that it exists in a certain location and whatnot. So well, all you've really done is added a wrapper, like a digital wrapper around a real-world asset, put that on-chain, but you still have all the problems that you would with any centralized system of validation that this real world asset exists. And I think that only digitally native assets like Bitcoin itself, the, the token that's digitally native to the chain is the only asset you can truly, 
truly own and, and utilize blockchain technology for. So that's, that's my opinion on blockchain tech in terms of the assets that you can have on chain. I'm also, a, I would say, a Bitcoin realist. So when it comes to Bitcoin versus other types of cryptocurrencies or crypto assets, I'm primarily just a fan of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's blockchain was created to solve a problem of storing value, to being gold 2.0. And there are other hypothesized use cases of, of blockchain technology or other hypothesized assets that could be alternative stores of value. But I find it very unlikely that Bitcoin will be taken out of its number one seat as a globally recognized store of value. I think that, you know, for example, Litecoin or Dogecoin would never replace the trust that people have in Bitcoin, in Bitcoin's origin, and Bitcoin's governance, um, and other issues that it's gone through that demonstrate the resiliency of the agreed upon social, the social uh, contract that we have with the Bitcoin blockchain. For example, like the enforcement of the 21 million hard cap. And uh, for the, the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, you know, these demonstrated Bitcoin's resiliency and demonstrated why it deserves the title of digital gold. Whereas these other assets, I, I don't think deserve that. And I think long term investors will likely realize that. And so I think Bitcoin being challenged in that store of value asset category is very unlikely. So, you know, some people go, oh, is Bitcoin MySpace or Facebook? And, and in this case, when Bitcoin is being a, a new digital gold and new store of value, its unchanging nature leads to confidence being built in its longevity over time. This is called the Lindy effect. And so I, I think that Bitcoin is basically unchallenged in the store value category. So you were talking a little bit about uh, physical items being terribly difficult to really kind of put onto a blockchain. And one of the things that's a really big thing in the space right now are NFTs or non-fungible tokens. First, explain what these are to, to the audience. And uh, then give us your thoughts on NFTs. And non-fungible tokens, uh, fungible, by the way, would be one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. So the item I have is interchangeable with any other exactly similar item. Um, a non-fungible token would mean that the item is uniquely different than any other item. That's why we call it non-fungible tokens. You can definitely tell an engineer came up with that term versus a, a marketer because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit technical for a, for a normal person to, to grok, you know? It's, Fungible isn't a word people use very often. So NFTs have risen in popularity recently. NFTs are not a new idea, by the way. NFTs have been around since around 2015 with, uh, I think, Rare Pepe's on the, oh, what was that called? A counterparty blockchain. So NFTs have been around for a long time. And what they represent, they represent a certificate or a certificate of ownership over a, a graphic asset, typically a graphic asset, because people like to, so you can kind of think about it like, you don't own the Mona Lisa, you own the certificate that validates the Mona Lisa, essentially. And that's what an NFT is. The graphic asset typically is not stored on chain due to how much data, you know, due to the bloat that would occur if you were storing all these graphic assets on chain. These don't have to be graphic assets. They're just, it just makes it easier, I think, for the listeners to kind of conceptualize what we're talking about here. So most of the time, those, uh, what you really own is, is essentially like a hash, a hash which represents a certificate essentially of ownership over this digital asset. So uh, different types of assets here that we're talking about, like to use real life examples, um, there's the NBA, I think, I think Hotshot is what it's called. So like different NBA clips. So from uh, basketball, different, different video clips of different moments, you can technically own that moment. Now, again, you, you just own, you own the certificate that validates that, that that's the moment. You know, anyone else can, can download that moment and, and own it in their own form on a computer or anything else. It's just recognized that 
is subjectively recognized amongst other participants on a certain blockchain that you have the certificate. This would be for licensing the clip to prove that you have the certificate of ownership so that you could license it? I don't, I'm not even sure if you have licensing rights. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's probably very limited. I assume that the NBA would not give out licensing rights to this. To these different NFTs, um, that's just one example. That's just one example of types of things that you can own. For example, there's an artist called Three Lao, and Three Lao is a musician, and he created some uh, pieces of art that you can own as well. Uh, Three Lao sold eleven million dollars worth of this art in the form of NFTs that individuals can own. It's really interesting dynamic. If you're not point- licensing it, Dan, like why would you want to own the certificate, or why would you pay these outrageous prices? Look, I mean, I'm, I'm personally not buying this. I'm, I'm more describing, I think I'm describing how they work and I'll, I'll get into a little bit of that, what I think is going on psychologically with yeah, the ownership yeah. of these. So what happened during 2017, I'm going to take a step back and then we'll go back to NFTs here real quick. Yeah. What happened in 2017 with ICOs was demand in the market. So individuals who wanted to hold ICOs, demand became so large that supply printed as much as demand wanted. So with ICOs, you can think of them as a black Scholes model of every possible narrative you could append to an investment. You want Uber on the blockchain? We got that for you. You got a disruptor of Amazon AWS? We got an ICO for you. And so these ICOs produced as much supply as demand wanted because demand kept buying it. And so people were like, sure, I'll come up with an ICO to solve cancer or whatever bullshit. And so to the tune of tens of billions of dollars of supply. Um, and demand kept eating it up until it didn't, until demand eventually started to evaporate. And the only reason why demand existed for these assets, 95% of the time, people didn't give a about the narrative. They're like, okay, cool. I don't care what this coin does. They just wanted to flip it. They just wanted to buy it and flip it to the next purchaser. So it was essentially, and I'm hoping to pump and dump. That drove most of the demand in the ICO space was purely driven on the idea that I can flip this to someone else at a higher price. Because almost none of these had anything, anything resembling a real product or anything resembling something real that was, that, that was solving a problem. Now, when we look at NFTs, they're a little bit different because they're collectibles and more art-based, which is highly subjective. But it, it feels a little bit of the same vibe. And Charlie Lee had a tweet storm today where he had a couple of great points. I recommend everyone check that out. He had some great points around how some other resemblance that he sees between ICOs and NFTs. The way that I see it resemble ICOs, the artist will produce as much NFTs, as, <laughs> as many NFTs as you want, as long as you keep buying them. <laughs> if an artist can make $11 million, which makes this artist like one of the most highly paid artists in the world, an artist as in a musician artist, this makes him makes three Lao one of the highest paid musicians in the world. Every other musician will print as much supply as mar- as demand will be willing to pay. These pieces of art are extremely cheap to create relative to the the value that's being generated for the artist selling it. So I think what we're going to see is is a lot of folks, and I think a lot of the folks buying NFTs. I think a lot of them aren't buying it because they love three Lao. A lot of them are probably buying it because they think they can flip it. You know, I'm not a, I'm not personally a fan of Three Loud. I don't listen to his music. I've got some of my own favorite artists that I'm, of course, really into. I'm not going to go pay a million dollars to have the NFT for a song. And, and by the way, you don't actually own the song; you just own like the certificate of the song. So I think what we're seeing here in the NFT market is another frothy market where folks think that they can buy this scarce asset in expectation that they can flip it to someone else at a higher value later. 
and there will be an infinite number of NFTs created. There will be sports NFTs, which is what we've seen already. There will be maybe porn NFTs, right? The list goes on. It becomes near infinite of the number of certificates you can sell someone. You could have NFTs for literally everything. And so that's what I think what we'll see here is a Black-Scholes model of pretty much an infinite number of, of NFTs as long as demand is there. And, it, and NFTs will be printed until demand is fully satisfied. And then I think there'll be a turning point where people go, okay, wait a second, why am I paying a million dollars for this NFT? And then that starts to spiral out, just like we saw with ICOs where people are like, wait, okay, no one's going to buy this from me at a higher value. I'm going to stop buying NFTs or I'm going to stop buying ICOs. And then demand starts to really dry up. So I think we're going to see the same sort of function happen with NFTs as well, where yes, it's a novel, it's a cool idea. I find it very unrealistic that the output, graphic output from a musician is worth $11 million. This is totally you know, crazy I, to me because yeah. my understanding of, of the certificate was, or at least I, my assumption when I saw some of this taking place is that then you become the owner of whatever. If it's, if it's a song and you buy the song, you get the certificate digitally over a blockchain or however they're, they're uh, managing these NFTs. And then you could then be the owner of, of all the income that that song could then generate if it's played, but it doesn't seem like that's, that's, you're saying that's not the case. I believe that most of these do not have a royalty component. I'm sure some might try to configure it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure most don't. Wow. Crazy. All right. You wrote an article. It's called Bitcoin Security is Fine. And this is a really interesting article because what you're getting at is this idea that right now people, I think, are really familiar with how there's a block reward for every 10-minute block that is mined. The, the miner that, that, find, that solves the puzzle gets their block reward, but they also get some transaction fees that people are competitively bidding to get their transaction put into the next block. So as time goes on and we march much further into the future, these rewards start to actually be larger than the block reward that the protocol automatically supplies to the person that, that finds the next block. You talk about this crossover. You talk about what this is going to lead to. And there's a lot of people that try to make the argument that there's not going to be enough miners that are going to want to uh, capture just the transaction fees as their reward, and it could lead to a blockchain that's not nearly as secure as, as we see it today or, or, or our expectations. Talk to us through how you lay out this, this argument and kind of where you think that this is going with respect to the security of the blockchain in the long term. All right. Well, if you're listening, you might either want to grab a cup of coffee or grab a drink because it, it's going to get a little <laughs> technical here. <laughs> Go for it. I, I'm, I'm real curious on this. This is really a fascinating subject. Yeah, so this is where, you know, as I've, you know, I wasn't as familiar with this until a couple of years ago when I started to spend more time researching it. This is where, you know, once you come to realize how intricate proof of work is, how intricate Bitcoin security model is, you understand how very narrow a use case for a blockchain can be. So it's in these moments when I've 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 continually fallen down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin and, and fell more and more in love with the architecture and also a little bit more uh, negative around other use cases for blockchain technology. So the way that Bitcoin secures itself is Bitcoin issues something called a block reward to Bitcoin miners. 
Bitcoin miners through the proof of work function expend energy and work, and uh, they expend energy in the form of proving that they did the work, and they are compensated with the network through this block reward. Now, why is this important? Why do they do this? So miners uh, purchase the equipment, they pipe in energy through the equipment, and then they are given a validation that they've done the proof of work and they interact with the Bitcoin protocol. And Bitcoin then gives them a certain percentage of the block reward. Now, per block, it's randomized. So you can think about it more like a lottery. So if I'm a miner and I represent 20% of all the hash rate, on average, I will win one out of five blocks. So it's not a it's not a percentage per block. It's on average of I keep mining and in my percentage of the hash rate or my percentage of my proof of work relative to the rest of the network is the probabilistic percentage of all the, the block rewards during the time period that I that I operated within that I'll receive. What the miners are doing when they when they find a new block, the new block consists so each block consists of newly minted bitcoins called the block subsidy and transaction fees. So the miners are are performing a couple of functions here when they're when they're finding a new Bitcoin block. They're not only issuing new units, so the the block subsidy. They're also validating and including transactions in that ten minute block. So that's a function of protecting the ledger, if you will. Uh, we can think about it uh, in in the way of that these miners are receiving this block reward, which is comprised of the newly minted bitcoins that the block subsidy plus transaction fees that people attach their transactions to be included. It's what they pay the miners to be included in that block. And that totals some value uh, called the block reward is what incentivizes miners to behave properly. Miners have spent all this money buying these specialized computers that are only useful for mining Bitcoin. They've piped electricity through it, and they are ordering these blocks in a sequential fashion. And uh, they're being compensated with the block reward because they're doing it properly. That is what secures Bitcoin's linear time, if you will, of the series of transactions that occur. We, we know definitively that the ownership of this coin uh, is owned by this UTXO because it occurred at a certain time, and, and that is recorded in this ledger, uh, this chain of blocks, this blockchain. We know that okay, the ownership of these coins exists to party A instead of party B because that newer transaction occurred later. So these miners are compensated with the block reward to behave properly, get all these transactions ordered in the right sequence, and they could, you know, a fifty-one percent attack could occur if miners are are willing to behave improperly. Um, now the miners have already bought the equipment and piped electricity through it, which costs a lot. And so the miners would have to be willing to sacrifice the block reward in order to mess with the ordering of transactions. Because what would happen is then people would become less confident in Bitcoin if miners started to behave improperly, which means that the value of the block reward would drop. And so the miners would be shooting themselves uh, in the foot, essentially. And they've already expended all their money buying these, these specialized equipment that can't be used for anything else. So that's the fundamental game theory that protects that not only issues new Bitcoin, but also protects the ledger, is that these miners are financially incentivized to behave properly and do their job of ordering transactions in the right direction. The total cost, uh, the total like annualized block reward value, I think right now is around $8 billion to $10 billion. So you can find a pretty raw aggregate metric here to quantify how much money it would cost for someone to attack Bitcoin. Uh, because someone has to not care about the money. They have to be willing to burn the money because the only way to perform this attack 
is to buy the equipment, run electricity through it, and then start to misbehave, which makes the value that you receive in the form of a block reward be worth a lot less. So you have to be essentially willing to burn the money. The concern is that over time, the subsidy inside the block reward, the subsidy being the newly minted Bitcoins, uh, through Bitcoin's issuance schedule every four years, the number of newly minted Bitcoins being produced in a block drops in half. And the worry is that over time, transaction fees will not rise to compensate for the drop in the block subsidy. So essentially what's happening is the rate, the issuance of newly minted Bitcoins is slowing slowing down. And the worry is that people won't pay more and more money in transaction fees in order to continue the same level of security spend or the same level of block word spend as there was historically. So there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is that we don't know what an appropriate level of blockchain security spend should be. We don't know if that's 1 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion, or 100 billion. The way that we phrase that, or as the way that Nick Carter phrased it, is that is a threshold security model. There's some sort of a threshold in which there's a level of $10 billion, $100 billion, And once we get over that, Bitcoin is super secure, even against state-level attacks. There's the stock and flow models, which are more around security spend as a percentage of Bitcoin's market cap. And then there's also the flow valuation method of looking at what's our security spend per amount of money flowing on chain, how much value flowing on chain, and how much security spend are we spending. I think that no one knows because Bitcoin, and, and so here's the weird thing is that Bitcoin's security spend, so the amount of money paid to miners in the form of a block reward over, over time has increased exponentially. Bitcoin's total annualized, I use annualized because it's an easier sum to come up with just to think about. You know, we're talking back in 2013, we're talking tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars annualized would be the, the amount in the security, the security spend. And now we're in the tens of billions. So Bitcoin has, while the subsidy has been decreasing through halvings, the total value of the block reward has increased exponentially due to the appreciation of the price of Bitcoin and the rise of transaction fees being paid per Bitcoin transaction. So over time, we've seen the total block reward value go up a whole bunch. And and Bitcoin hadn't been attacked before when the total value was worth much less. And so it's really hard to know, are we secure or not? And so it's a very subjective thing. I do think a $10 billion annualized security spend is high. There's only a few attackers who'd be willing to spend that sort of capital. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I think another important point to kind of add to that is just the production of hardware and the consolidation of hardware and the time that would be required to do something like that without anybody in the market noticing or raising a red flag saying, hey, I think there's some issues here. Why is why are mining rigs getting so expensive all of a sudden? And why is there such a substantial delay in delivery because somebody or some entity is acquiring all this hardware? So I think that there would be a lot of signaling that would occur in the marketplace just for hardware well in advance of something like that just coming online out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, this topic is really nuanced. (laughs) I was surprised you brought it up because there's a lot of different rabbit holes to this. Yeah. What you're talking about is, for example, there's only so many number of foundries or chip manufacturing facilities that can produce these ASICs. ASICs being this specific machinery that's used to mine Bitcoin. And yeah, we would be able to see this activity occurring far in advance because we'd see the price of these ASICs start to skyrocket. Yeah. And we would go, oh, okay, well, well, who's who's buying all these? Which is funny because then that actually might send a signal to the market that 
maybe uh, everyone starts to buy the ASICs and then maybe more foundries are created. So, you know, the game theory behind Bitcoin is really interesting. You know, I wanted to cover the basics of the block reward function and, and, and the circumstance that was happening with the decline of the subsidy, uh, because that's where people are worried that transaction fees won't compensate. But yeah, there's even deeper game theory that plays out here of like, what happens if someone actually attempts to do this? So, you know, this raw number of currently around like $10 billion worth of annualized spend in the block reward, you know, this, this is, uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, we don't know what an appropriate level of security spend is. There's a lot of other ways to counter an attack like this. So it isn't a guaranteed successful attack. This is just a way to disrupt the tip of the blockchain. And there, remember, there are other good miners here too. So there's all sorts of games that can be played that get really, really technical. So what I did is I looked at, I'm, I'm a product guy. Uh, so my background's in growth, uh, both on product management and growth marketing. And I've worked at companies like Uber on writer growth and the growth marketing team and at, at crypto startups. Currently what I do over at Kraken, I lead growth marketing and a little bit of, a little touch of uh, growth product. So the way that we look at how to build products is we develop KPIs, key performance indicators to calibrate all of our actions. Why am I building this new feature? Well, this new feature will get us more users or the users will become more engaged with the product. And ultimately, both of those drive more revenue. We use KPIs as the alignment mechanism to align our efforts. When we look at a KPI or a way to monitor performance for Bitcoin's security model, a good way to look at it would be transaction fees over the block subsidy. So what that metric gives us, and Glassnode, by the way, has this metric, which is really awesome. And so what this metric shows us is our, our transaction fees replacing the subsidy over time. And what we're seeing is that they roughly are. Now, Bitcoin has many, many, many halvings ahead of it, and a lot of price appreciation, which we all hypothesize. With that, you know, we've got a lot of time for this to be figured out. This doesn't have to be figured out immediately. Uh, we've got like 10 to 15 years before we'd see signs that there might be an issue. And what we're seeing is over a very long period of time, transaction fees indeed are replacing the block subsidy, which you know that, that worrisome moment that transaction fees won't be large enough in value to properly incentivize these miners. I don't think we're seeing that. Uh, first and foremost, we don't even know what that value would be. So when people go, oh, we this uh, Bitcoin's long-term security could be poor, I'm like, cool, what value is that? Because that's totally subjective. Number two, if, we're look, if we look at the primary KPI that would indicate if this is trending in the right direction, things look fine. I think Bitcoin as of this moment... All right, Preston. So I just pulled up last no data and the percentage minor revenue from fees for Bitcoin is around between 10 and 15%. So, and if we look at it on a log chart over time, and again, anyone can look up this data on their own on Glassnode. It's, it's very much trending in the right direction. Now, I'll go ahead and preemptively address some of the concerns that people throw up because I've debated dozens of people on this topic. What they claim is that the price elasticity, that the transactor's uh, affinity to go pay a higher fee or how price inelastic they are, there's concerns that people will choose not to pay higher and higher transaction fees on Bitcoin's blockchain. So that's where they go, oh, cool. Well, you're seeing transaction fees as a percentage of minor revenue go up, but it's going to get capped out because people at a certain amount will stop paying that. I think we're, we're pretty far away from that. And what I used was real world comps to calibrate how much people might be willing to spend on a layer one transaction. So we have a couple of different ways to think through this. One, we've got US dollar wires. Those are between $20 and $40 round trip. And people pay those every day. People are very willing to pay those as a way to settle large amounts of value. And so Bitcoin transaction fees could hit a median. Uh, so not just like, you know, not just like a, a peak, but like the average transaction or the 
the median transaction could be around $20 to $40. And I don't think anyone would bat an eye. But I think we can go much higher than that as well. Bitcoin isn't just a wire. Bitcoin is like an offshore bank account. It's like a physical gold settlement. Physical gold settlements is extremely expensive. <laughs> In terms of a dollar value, it's, it's so prohibitively expensive to physically settle gold that it occurs very rarely. But when they do do it, they've got like Brinks security trucks, security individuals. When Germany repatriated its gold from the US and the UK, it took like three years and like $10 million. And, and so we've got that. So physical gold settlement. And then we have, um, we've got a couple other transaction types. We have offshore banking. And offshore banking is set up an offshore bank account is in, at least in the thousands of dollars. In addition to wiring money on occasion, where you're paying international wire fees of 40 to 60 bucks. So people are, are willing to pay thousands of dollars. And there's also a management fee with a lot of these banks and offshore banking to manage your money. So people are paying thousands or tens of thousands or millions of dollars to facilitate the movement of large amounts of capital. And then we also have like a real estate transaction. You know, you've got like title insurance for a real estate transaction. You've got uh, broker fees. You've got all of these fees associated with it. So Bitcoin as a store of value asset to pay, you know, what I would estimate like long-term transaction fees around like fifty to hundred dollars per transaction seems pretty reasonable to me especially compared to these other real world transaction types that are closely equivalent to a Bitcoin store of value transaction. I think this is why I, I get very annoyed with the, uh, the payments narrative. And not only is it, is it damaging to Bitcoin's uh, adoption because you're, you know, you, we saw the Bitcoin cash hard fork, which was due to a misperception that Bitcoin should be used as a cheap PayPal. You also lead to a circumstance where people become very disenfranchised with Bitcoin. Fees will rise. We have a, essentially a fixed amount of block space for for just easy easy math here. It's basically fixed, and we have a lot of demand that will increase for this block space. So block space is is the space that transactions can be put into a block. And so we have a it's like a fixed parcel of land, and we got a lot of people coming in. And so transaction fees will naturally rise. And so these payments narrative folks, I find it really disingenuous because I'm like transaction fees for Bitcoin will rise. We we can all see it. It's a supply and demand function. And this is good for Bitcoin because it means that the long-term security will be great. Well, and it, it also doesn't prohibit from being used as a payment mechanism, at least on the layer two, like we were talking about earlier. So although a, you know, a person might be listening to this and saying, well, that's crazy. No one's ever going to use this thing on a day-to-day -day basis if the, if the transaction fees are 20 or $30. But I would tell you, if you're doing any type of meaningful amount of $10,000 or more, which those types of transactions are happening all day long, all across the globe. And so are your $10 transactions, which would be happening on the second layer for near nothing in fees, and, and you have immediate settlement. So that's a good point around layer two facilitating those lower value transaction yeah. types. But I, I think it's that when I talk about disingenuous with the payments folks, it's because they, they promote layer one being used yeah. for that. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. Nick Carter, again, Nick Carter is a great thought leader in this space. Uh, he's currently in a battle with a guy named Raj uh, to get to 100,000 Twitter followers. So if you're listening to this, follow Nick Carter on Twitter. <laughs> we we got to sure. have a Raj. <laughs> for sure. Nick is brilliant. But yes. Nick has a great way of explaining this, which is that Bitcoin layer one transactions, that's a cargo ship. The containers are like layer two. You put a bunch of containers on a cargo ship and move it in a layer one transaction. You don't try to move those little containers, one, one little container on an entire cargo ship. You put a whole bunch of them on there. Like we talked about before with Lightning, there's a lot of economic density there. 
There's a lot of like smaller value transactions on layer two that occur, and those net out on layer one. And, and the reason why we use layer two is it, it's a proper scale, a way to scale. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why, um, but the TLDR is that trying to scale on layer one essentially would make Bitcoin equivalent to a, a Visa, where you've got three servers in the world. It could facilitate a lot of transactions, but it's not very decentralized. And so Bitcoin's block space on layer one needs to remain small and compact. And that's where we push scaling solutions to layer two, where we don't need a completely trustless environment or a trust-minimized environment. We um, sacrifice a little bit, a little bit of that for speed and cost. And that's what these, these layers upon Bitcoin provide with like layer two, like Lightning. When you think about the technology adoption curve, and so folks that might not be intimately familiar with this, you have the early innovators, you have early adopters, then you start getting into early majority, late majority, and then the laggards. We're at a trillion dollars right now in market cap for Bitcoin. Where do you see where we're at in that technology adoption curve? That's a really good question. I mean, if we look at if we look at some of the raw numbers of market penetration, so percentage ownership, depends on the country. Depends on you know a lot of like Western, like a lot of European countries. Uh, the United States have higher penetration in terms of ownership. Some countries like Korea, I think during 2017 had double digit percentage ownership of crypto. And so I think on Bitcoin's adoption curve, you know, I'd say we're still very early stages. I think like the number of the estimated number of unique Bitcoin hodlers. Is probably around 100 million. And this is a guesstimate from survey data from people compiling unique user numbers from Coinbase and Kraken and other companies, other exchanges and brokerages. So I think 100 million is probably a reasonable, and it's just some easy math here, right? So we've got around 7.7 billion people on earth. So we're talking a, a, pretty, a pretty low percentage own Bitcoin. And so I would say we're still in the very early sort of uh, adoption cycle of Bitcoin. And at a trillion dollars, so that's one way to think about it is the number of unique holders compared to the world population. Um, and then you've got a metric which would be around like valuation. So market capitalization, the total value of all Bitcoin. So Bitcoin as an asset. Uh, $1 trillion was a huge moment for Bitcoin. I thought that, I, I thought that was incredible. $1 trillion solidifies Bitcoin as a real asset. A mature real asset that can be taken seriously by institutional investors. And um, a trillion dollars, though, isn't that big. And if we look at other store value assets, Bitcoin, I think, has a long way to run. Gold itself is worth around 10 trillion. We've got other store value assets like real estate in the hundreds of trillions. Uh, for example, like London, and I, I bucket real estate into that. Some people are like, why are you talking about real estate as a store value asset? Well, you're, the raw utility of your home. A very low percentage of the value of your home is the raw utility of the home. A lot of the value of the home is in the is in the owning a fixed parcel of land or a fixed amount of space that uh, can't be easily printed. So scarcity of of the land. Hence, why we see um, you've got cities like New York City and London that are used. And some of these homes are purely, I mean, basically purely used as a store value asset. Where you've got wealthy Saudi Arabians or Russians who purchase a, a ten million dollar home in London and, and never live there. So you know that's why I bucket uh, real estate into store of value or, or another type of asset that Bitcoin competes with. You've also got like uh, essentially broad money metrics around like how much uh, fiat money is out there. You've got um, you know you've got sovereign bonds, uh, which are like a hundred trillion dollar market. These are a little bit rounded. I'm, I'm sure these numbers aren't exact, so don't take these verbatim as as, as exact metrics here. But these are directionally accurate in terms of size of market. So. 
what I'm trying to say here is that Bitcoin at a trillion dollars is a very small um, store of value asset relative to all these other store of value assets out there. And I would say it has su- a supremely superior, uh, like supremely better characteristics as a store of value asset. <laughs> and so Bitcoin is, and then also the supply of gold is unknown. We don't know how much gold has been mined. We don't know how much gold will be mined. With Bitcoin, we have extreme mathematical precision over its supply, and it's instantly transferable to anyone in the world. So Bitcoin is, is definitively a, su- a superior asset relative to gold. And then when we look at real estate, as we mentioned before, one home does not equal one home. There are maintenance costs because the real estate exists in the physical world, which has weather and, and all sorts of other mechanisms that erode its value versus Bitcoin, which can be stored on a piece of metal and locked away somewhere super cheap for eternity. Um, so Bitcoin as a store of value asset is incredible in terms of its characteristics. And that's why I think Bitcoin will very much e-gobble up the gold market capitalization, fiat, sovereign bonds, and likely some of real estate, which puts it in the tens or hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of value. What are your thoughts on some of the on-chain data that you're seeing right now compared to previous cycles? That's a good question. Um, I'm not parsing through on-chain analytics like super often. Um, there are some interesting ones that I've heard about in terms of like I hear about it on Twitter and through uh, through my uh, personal network. One would be like supply of coins held on exchanges. I think this is a really interesting metric around people can look at the aggregate number of Bitcoin that are held on centralized exchanges like the company I work at, Kraken, Coinbase, et cetera. And the total value of Bitcoin held, the total number of Bitcoin held by these exchanges is dropping over time. And people hypothesize what's occurring is that institutional investors are buying it and then either self-custodying it or moving it and custodying it elsewhere. Uh, people think that this is a bullish thing because it reduces the amount of supply on exchange, which has the potential to reduce sell-side pressure. Um, the only way people can buy a Bitcoin is if someone's willing to sell it. And if there's less and less sellers and there's more demand, number go up. That's the, uh, the, the TLDR of that, that idea. I, I think it's pretty interesting. You know, I do think the 21 million hard cap is such a brilliant, uh, beautiful thing of, of that 21. I mean, there's only 21 million. There, there's no supply response. So with gold, if gold becomes more valuable, we can dig deeper into the earth to find more and more gold. But we can't do that with Bitcoin. As demand increases for Bitcoin, supply doesn't do anything. Supply is like, cool. All right, 10 times the number of people want Bitcoin, tough luck. And so that's what leads to Bitcoin's uh, volatility, which is a good thing, leads to volatility and Bitcoin's exponential rises in price. So I, I think it's... Uh, I think the supply at exchanges definitely demonstrates less and less sell-side pressure. Um, So I think that's a bullish metric that I found particularly interesting. All right. So rumor has it you're making a documentary. I'm kind of curious how that's going. And then talk to us about the methodology of how you're going through the the, the layout of how you want to present your documentary. I'm actually participating in two. So these are other individuals' documentaries on Bitcoin. In the ecosystem, and I've been asked to um, uh, participate in two of them. So that's what I tweeted about the other day. Now there is something I, I will bring up that I am working on. Uh, that's a video project. So I have stood up a YouTube channel. So I first got started with my personal brand on Twitter, and I've got about 140,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Dan Held on Twitter, by the way, for folks who want to check that out. And I recently started to spin up a couple other channels. So I spun up my newsletter. And so if you want to know some of these longer form topics, check that out as well. It's Dan Held Substack. If you Google that, that you'll go find it. 
Um, it's called the Held Report. And the Held Report started to make some money uh, because I, I write this weekly. It's kind of my more intimate thoughts around Bitcoin and different niche topics within the Bitcoin ecosystem. Like I go deep on price, I go deep on Bitcoin versus Ethereum. But what I really love is video. Video content is super cool. And I spun up a YouTube channel about uh, three months ago. And so I've just started to build that up, which has been really fun. I fly drones for fun. And I've taken that footage and I've had to use Premiere Pro and cut it up and, and craft narratives. I think video is an extremely compelling medium to convey topics about Bitcoin. So what I'm doing is I'm working with my animator to try to build out a video series of very compressed ways to talk about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin works. That is me walking you through it combined with visual imagery that I handcrafted with my designer, Sven. So Sven knows After Effects and he knows how to animate all this. And so what we do is I sit down and I sketch it and sketch out a time series, essentially, of, of what this visualization will look like. And then we think through how it's going to be rendered and him and I work together on it. So I'm really excited to bring this up because it's, it's something where him and I are, are just now working on this. It, it takes a ton of time to not only script it, so you've got to write a script for the video. You've also got to, you know, for example, like in the video, I point and then the animation forms. So I have to time it very precisely. I'm very, very particular with animations that I create. So Sven and I have created a bunch before. Uh, if you've seen a, a black and white GIF on Twitter that has to do with Bitcoin, it's probably one of mine. And so we, we've already done this with different Bitcoin topics. And so I'm trying to compress Bitcoin's narrative to the maximum compression and simplicity as possible. So I'm really excited about video content. It's really cool because you can repurpose it. So if we build it for YouTube, we can also take it and put it on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. And so I, I'm really stoked about that. So yeah, I'm not doing a documentary. I'm participating in two documentaries, but I am um, producing a series of videos and I, I don't have an exact date as to when these come out. I want to get it done in the next three months, but we'll see if that actually happens. <laughs> video content is a lot of work. It's a lot more <laughs> than audio work. That's for sure. <laughs> And, and audio is a bunch of work too. I mean, Preston's probably has a couple of support people that help him out on on stuff. And so, you know, even audio, you know, you got to sit down, take time to record with me. Preston did, you had a bunch of great notes and, and homework. And I know you asked your followers if they had questions for me too. So yeah, video content is the maximum amount of work. It definitely is. <laughs> you know, I've got a full-time job and I also have to keep my girlfriend happy and, and I, I still have friends, you know, so <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's, I'm going to try to get it done in the next three months, but we'll see if that actually happens. Well, Dan, we're going to have links to all the things that you mentioned in the show notes. Is there anything else that you wanted to highlight or, or point people towards? Well, I think that's it. You know, on almost all my content's free. I, my uh, paid newsletter, if you want to get it first, that comes out Thursdays. A couple days later, I tweet about it because I, I want to bring these topics out that everyone can hear. But if you really like the way that I explain things, if you want to support me, that's the best way to do it. I think Twitter is where you're going to get kind of <laughs> Twitter and the newsletter, you're going to get the raw Dan held. So on Twitter, I pretty unashamedly speak exactly how I feel about Bitcoin. And same with the newsletter. For example, today I wrote about Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And um, you know, this was a, a topic that had been highly requested. I, I sent out a survey at the end of every newsletter I write to my readers, and this is the one that they voted for as the number one requested topic. So this one was a, a kind of a meatier one to dig into, uh, but I give my kind of you know, very raw feelings about exactly how I feel about Bitcoin and Ethereum and especially compared to each other. So yeah, I'd say Twitter and my newsletter are the two best places to, to kind of stay up to date with what I'm talking about. That's where I hang out the most. 
Dan, we really appreciate this and uh, what fun to finally be able to talk in person instead of uh, on the keyboard like we have been for, for years at this point. So Dan, thank you for making time. Preston, thanks for having me and uh, hopefully come back on again and we can cover more topics. You bet. Hey, so thanks for everybody listening into the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're using. We really appreciate that. And if you have time, leave us a review. So thanks for joining us this week and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.